Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, if you would. And uh, as I do, I just want to kind of share my heart about the burden I have for, for the church in our day, in our culture, being a Minnesota boy, myself, growing up my whole life in the, in the U.S. and being a part of, of the church in America and uh, had 15 years now to be groomed by the Lord a little bit and understand what, what he really desires of a person, obedient to him and it's quite the roller coaster when you, when you consider the American church. Great things, but horrifying things as well. And Jesus comes in on the scenes and confounds everybody. Nobody gets what they're expecting when Jesus shows up. Even to this day, nobody gets what they're expecting when Jesus shows up. It's a good thing. <clears throat> We're kind of quick to uh, dismiss kind of the, the process of God, the timeline of God, very simple in the, in the Word of God. Uh, two-thirds of our Bible is the Old Testament, and it's history. It really happened with a living God, with real people, starting with the specific nation after, of course, the, the drama of the fall. But here's the thing. We, we come to the New Testament. What usually happens in modern-day United States, 2,000 years removed from the words of Jesus himself, is we get all kinds of off-based, wild interpretations of the New Testament based on dismissing the Old Testament. And one of my greatest passions is the whole Bible to be understood by people. The whole thing, from Adam and Eve, doing it like the, the way that um, New Tribes Missions has done it and always continues to do it, which is an awesome way, is to do a flannel graph. To, to be a simple human being who's learning to follow Jesus by the way that the, the multitudes learn to follow Jesus. Any person of any social status, any class, any ethnicity, any gender, any experience of life can follow Jesus. But we complicate everything. We overemphasize how wise we are. And therefore we alienate people, the majority of people, from following Jesus. There's lots of motives behind it, lots of reasons that we all have common. We all have common bad motives, and we're going to get into that. But in essence, the Bible in a snapshot is really this. A storm is coming, and embrace the narrow way as that day approaches. That's the Bible. A storm is coming. When I was in Florida, we never had a hurricane. We lived there for over a year, and hurricane has not been very common in Florida for the last three years. And if you're familiar at all with the weather forecast of hurricanes, you got a, just a tropical storm, which is standard to them, which is like a 50, 60 mile an hour winds sometimes like we have up here in, in straight line storm winds. But when a category four or five is announced on the news, people start doing one of two things. If you're, if you're bold enough, 
you just bat up the hatches and go and take cover in your house. But if you're wise enough, you hit the highways and you head out of town. But one thing's for sure, when the storm is predicted to be a four or five category hurricane, people sober up and take it serious. In Minnesota, if a snowstorm's coming, people hit the grocery stores quick. If a tornado is coming in Tornado Alley, people learn to not mess around and second guess if it's really going to come. They do the right procedures and preparing to be able to take on that storm, whether it's fleeing from it or hunkering down in the safest place you know to be true. And that's the response of the world. If you know Jesus, the response to the coming storm is to stay home where you know it's safe, as close to Jesus as you can be possible. If you're an unbeliever, it's to flee from that storm to Jesus. But one thing we know for sure is a storm is coming. And one of the reasons that we don't realize that is because we're so quick to dismiss the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of warnings of the day of the Lord is coming, the storm is coming. Nahum chapter 1, I love it. It it goes through, the, the rocks will be blasted, the fire will shake, the earth will shake, the mountains will quake, all these horrible things. And it says, but the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. And that's the key statement. The Lord knows those who take refuge in him. Taking refuge in Jesus is the only thing that matters in our life. The greatest enemy to the church is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness has its many subtle forms that it comes back in in religious clothing in our life as Christians. Let's look at Matthew 16 and see what Jesus had to say. Matthew 16, verse 1 through 12. Let's look at the storyline. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing him Ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Matthew 16, verse 2. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky, excuse me, is red. You guys heard the phrase in the um, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. That's the same idea here. So you see the sky is red, and you say it'll be fair weather. Verse 3, and in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side and had forgotten to take bread. Jesus said to them, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss among themselves, saying, It's because we took no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? 
or the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This leaven in Scripture is always negative. There's one place in Scripture where people will debate if it's positive or negative. I stand that it's negative. But leaven is always described as something that's bad influence, and it progressively spreads and increases and permeates and takes over. Leaven is not a good thing. Paul warned the believers that a little leaven leavens the lump when they didn't put out a man that was falling away from the Lord, having a relationship within his family that doesn't belong within a family in that sense. And leaven was always something to confront as evil. It started with the Passover, the literal leaven in bread that these young Jewish men misunderstood Jesus to be talking about. Having bread that's unleavened is what they thought that Jesus wanted them to understand. And he said, no, no, forget about those old traditions. I'm talking about something entirely different. I'm talking about a way of life that I, as the Messiah, am bringing about to show you how to follow. So leaven, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is important. There's another place in Mark 8.15. It'll be up on your screen here. Mark 8.15, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herod. Right, Elijah? That's okay. Beware of the leaven of Herod, the Herodians. So there were three main groups in Israel that were opposing Jesus, and they were all against each other. In fact, there are only three of many sects that were against Jesus. There were many little break-offs of Judaism in that day. And in that day, the most prominent known were the Pharisees for us. The thing about the Pharisees is that they were like middle-class businessmen in their status. In their religion, they were blameless with good doctrine, did all the right things. They also believed in the oral traditions coming all the way back to Moses that people would traditionally pass on teaching by mouth and not by book. They believed that, but they held to that so tightly that what happens is they added to Scripture traditions that invalidated the very Word of God itself. They had good doctrine, but they had hypocrisy of heart. They were clean on the outside. They attracted the multitudes in one way because the common people could relate to a middle-class person. But in another way, they alienated those same people from entering the way of Jesus because they put on burdens that they themselves didn't do. They had a hypocrisy that alienated people, though it brought people near. It was like Galatians 4.17 warned. They they alienate you to make you depend on themselves. The Pharisees made people depend on them and follow them. Now, the Sadducees were more political than religious, They supported Rome. Whatever Rome could do to support them, they complied with to to hold on to their oligarchy, their, their combined leadership, the high priesthood, the Sanhedrin. They had the force of the priesthood. Where the Pharisees had 
the decision-making because they had the common people in agreement with them. The Sadducees had a political control in the high priesthood where they were in agreement with Rome and they wanted to please Rome. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead or an afterlife or demons or angels. And they didn't believe in any scripture but some of the Old Testament, most specifically the Torah, the five books of Moses. They believed they were based on the 70 elders of Moses that he appointed. So they took that and carried that along, and of course, like anything else, becomes dusty, stale, and outdated, and the wrong purpose happens, like anything religious. So they carried themselves for the purpose of opposing the Pharisees' beliefs in a resurrection and complying with Rome. They didn't even believe that a Messiah needed to come because they established the oligarchy, leadership, and they wanted to hold on to that with whatever would happen. So it's interesting, they're the first ones to go when 70 AD happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. They didn't have anything left. They have the priesthood, their reputation, their status, their ability, their social, uh, um, their, their, all they had was taken down in 70 AD. Now there's a third group, the Herodians. Herod was the king in Jerusalem. He was the king of Judea. And the Herodians complied with Herod. They were publicly political. Their agenda was, please Herod, because he's going to bring about a realized theocracy in the earth. He's going to restore the theocracy that God had with Israel. They were all holding on to something, all coming from the same motives, self-righteousness. All coming from the same motives, self-preservation. All coming from the same motives, wanting to hold on to control in their life in some avenue. Well, Jesus comes on the scene, and nothing that we can hold on to for our way of living can, can stand. Nobody, can, nobody knows what to expect. He comes and he says, you follow me. He comes to fishermen, and he says, drop your nets, explain it to your father later, and come follow me. And they do. But the people that were holding on to something else of their own agenda, resisted him. And you know what ended up happening? The Pharisees and the Herodians could agree on the crucifixion of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could agree on the crucifixion of Jesus. Because of the leaven that their teaching brought about, many were being influenced by it. And I fear in our day that that spirit of the same mentalities is alive and well in the church. It's common to man. The scriptures are for instruction to learn from the past, right? And maybe we don't have, maybe we're not the Jewish temple, we're not the Jewish people, but Paul says, look to the nation of Israel in 1 Corinthians 10 and learn from them. They were grumblers, they did this, they did that. They fell, many fell. And stand firm, if you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. No temptation sees you, but what's common to man, and God provides a way out, so flee idolatry. That was his exhortation. He warns based on what happened to Israel. So when Jesus comes on the scene, and he warns of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's talking to his own followers. He's talking to the 12 that are devoted to him, one that betrays him. But they all had their own predispositions. Not only Judas expected Jesus to take over with authority and 
and kick out Rome. But all the disciples were expecting him to establish the kingdom then and there. And that's not bad overall, but, it, but obviously there is a self-preservation in it. As Jesus, later in the same chapter of Matthew 16, rebukes Peter for saying, God forbid that you would suffer first and then reign. And he says, Peter, you're thinking about how man's interested to live, not God's interest in getting the deepest level of love out of your heart through you embracing the difficult way, losing this life and finding it in the end. And in doing that, he says that to Peter, and he says, unless you guys follow the way that I'm going, you'll lose your life. Follow the way I'm going. That was his call. So we need to avoid the way of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians in our day. Jesus' way, the following of Jesus, is neither political nor religious. And those two things are the most confrontational issues in our heart. Jesus is neither political nor religious. But he calls us to follow him. He calls us to take up our cross. He calls us to follow him daily, to stay close to him, to walk in his footsteps, to be ready to suffer. He said about Herod, he said, you tell that fox. (laughs) Herod said, the the, uh, Pharisees came to him and said, Herod wants to kill you, you better run. You know, their motive was distract him, do whatever we can to whatever, you know, kind of, we don't like you, undertone, but sounding nice on the outside. Look out for Herod. He's, he wants to kill you. You tell that fox that I kill, I, I heal, I cast out demons, and in three days, I rise again. They're going to kill me. He, he knew. He, he told that to Herod. Now, the Herodians, excuse my ear losing the, there we go. The Herodians were people that followed close to Herod. Do you remember when Herod was in Acts chapter 26, is it, or 20, no, chapter 12, and they're praising him, these nations, because they need food. They're in a desperate situation, so they say, a God and not a man, a God and not a man. What happened to Herod? Anybody know? He got eaten by worms because he didn't give glory to God. You see, those were people that were taking on the Herodian following. Another one. Caesar, give to Caesar what Caesar's. The Herodians came to Jesus and said, well, what do you say about this? And he says, you hypocrites, whose face is on here? It's Caesar. So give to Caesar what Caesar. So the Herodians were trying to catch Jesus as though he was anti-government, anti-political, anti-Roman, anti-whatever. All these groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians had an agenda, and they wanted to prove that Jesus was against it. And you see, everybody after him, Paul, Stephen, etc., were accused of the same things that were against those groups. So, what does Jesus call us to? Turn to Matthew 7. Verse 13 and 14 middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, rather. 
course, Jesus coming on the scene, doing the same thing, you know, coming to these people that understand the Old Testament, but he's saying, you don't understand the Old Testament. You don't understand the point of the law. Let me interpret what it really says. And he's closing this dramatic message, lengthy and thought-provoking and encouraging and, and welcoming, yet confrontational. And in the end, he says to these people, Enter the narrow way, verse 13, the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. It's uh, like Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. Then he says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. So Jesus nails it right there. He says, there's a gate, and it's narrow. They had city gates that were narrow in Jerusalem. One would be open during the night while the gates were closed, and we get the the eye of a needle, the camel. The camel could go down on its knees and be pushed through. This is one theory on what the eye of the needle meant, and be able to make it through the wall if he didn't have the baggage or anything hanging on on the camel, he could get through. That's a word picture of trying to enter a gate. It's narrow. The idea of narrow is there's obstacles. In the, in the Greek word, it's, there's obstacles to getting through. It's like close quarters. Self-righteousness can have no part of the narrow way. Nothing in my hand do I bring, only to your cross do I cling. That's the narrow way. For real, though, we tend to take justification by faith, and it's this vacuum understanding of, woohoo, I'm home free. But it's a dynamic call to embrace the tension of living in a broken world, looking for the perfect world. The idea of faith is to live by faith. Yes, we're justified by faith, but justified to live by faith. And there's a tension to fight the fight of faith. It's the narrow way. It's forsaking righteousness of your own. That's why Paul said, one thing I do, I press, I leave behind, not to be found having a righteousness of my own from the law, but by faith. But he says he presses that he might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That he might be resurrected with the just. I don't know where you all stand between the whole debate of Calvinism, Arminianism. But here's the thing. I don't agree with either fully, but both have their truth. Now here's the deal. The problem is, uh, surface your own motives of why you believe what you believe on either side. Because here's the thing. The tendency for people that don't believe Calvinism and choose Arminianism is they still believe in once saved, always saved. They might not come out and say it, but search your own motives. Is this walk of faith a done deal once for all, no matter how you live your life afterwards? You get the question, was it a genuine repentance? Did they actually fall away? Can you fall away or did you actually repent? You know, all this debate. Here's the point. It's a narrow way and there's one way to enter it. It's by forsaking any righteousness of your own. 
And the modern day leaven of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians is just that. Whatever causes you to take back up your righteousness, very much clothed in religious garb usually, whatever it may be, or a political agenda. Political agenda. Guys, the church should not be political snobs. Seriously. Do we hate what God hates? Do we hate what God hates? We do. But is it our job to go out in the streets and tell people that we hate it? You see what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. Rightly so. Do people get angered at the church because of the signs and picketing and agendas and and yeah, we should speak up for Jesus. We should speak up for righteousness. But what does that look like? Jesus never alienated anybody. Let that be a watchword to how we address issues publicly, politically. He never alienated anybody purposefully. The rich young ruler alienated himself. And Jesus didn't pull any punches on the troop. He went away gloomy as one having many riches. But Jesus didn't beg him, hey, it really is going to be good, even though that's true. (laughs) To follow Jesus is going to be good. It is going to be good. Great fellowship. Grace upon grace that we stand in. But the challenge is, how do we embrace the narrow way in society? How do we walk that narrow way all the way? Walking the narrow way all the way is the question. Because there's a way that leads to life. Notice the gate you enter is a way that leads to life. It's not this, oh, I'm in. It's a way of life. It's following Jesus. That's not as hard or easy as we think. It's both. It's as easy as listen and obey. What's he saying right now in this relationship, in this setting, in this decision, in this financial purchase, whatever. Always be bringing that before him. Why? Because he's good, he's wise, he knows the best investments, and not only that, he knows the motives of your heart. Ooh. So be careful in making decisions without Jesus. On the other hand, it's very hard because you know why? We want to be righteous. We want to find something that adds up in us. Greatest example of training kids with that is when the kid wants to apologize for doing something wrong and apologize and apologize and we're saying, okay, we understand you're sorry. That's not the point. We're trying to help you understand the better way. Don't try to prove yourself. You see what I mean? Over-apology, it reveals that desire to, I should have known better. I'm being found out. That's one of those forms that we need to learn to lay aside. We need to learn how to be good failures. Learn how to be a good failure. You know how you learn to be a bad failure? You imagine you're not going to fail. You know how to learn to be a good failure? Fail forward. Seriously. Oh, shucks, I feared man there. Jesus, give me the fear of the Lord. Etc. Fill it in. But following Jesus is to follow him in the narrow way all the way. 
all the way to that holy city that's coming from God. To be pilgrims looking to the city that's coming out of heaven. So the narrow way. Why the narrow way? Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, I put down the wrong verses. That's good. We can move to 7, 24 to 27. Sorry, Elijah. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. This is why Jesus is exhorting people to take the narrow way. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, the Sermon on the Mount, and how it clusters together the whole Bible. Jesus takes the whole Bible and clusters it in to Matthew 5 through 7. This is what I mean by the whole Bible. That's what he does. So he takes it and he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Why did he build his house upon the rock? He believed something without a shadow of a doubt. He truly believed there was a storm coming. He heard the forecast, and he heeded diligently, immediately. And he put his life devotion, at least in that moment, to shut everything down and build his house. To build his house. All right. So he built his house upon a rock. The other man, what did he do? I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. My earpiece distracted me. Verse 25, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it burst against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. He knew the storm was coming, so he built likewise. Beloved, do we know the storm is coming? We see precursors to it. God is good. Look how slowly he brings about the storm. He's not bringing about the storm because his arms are folded and he's not pleased and he's a sadistic ruler who wants to judge you. We know that. The patience of the Lord is salvation, Peter says in 2 Peter. I saw the sun coming up this morning. Very slowly. You know how slowly the sun comes up? What's the sun reveal when it comes up? According to Lamentations 3, his mercy, his faithfulness, his love is new. It it never fails. Every morning. Do you know that there's no distinction between God's judgment and God's mercy? His wrath is a whole other game. But this age is God winning the human hearts completely through his son, through his spirit, and through his Tender mercies of old. His tender mercies of old. The mercy of God. His self-humbling to meet us in our lowest state. The grace of God appearing to all men. Giving salvation. Causing us to live sober. Looking to the blessed hope. What kind of God not only gives you his love, but calls you to love him back with his love? gives you his obedience and calls you to obey him back with his son's obedience. The narrow way is the only way. Do you know what kind of people end up in hell? Good people. Jesus didn't come for good people. 
He came for the sinner. And either you're a sinner being recycled or you're a sinner dead in your sin rejecting the mercy of God. Woe are we if we recycle the American dream and make a Christian. It's not very obvious. It's subtle. Again, that's a heart motive thing with you and the Lord. There's not a hard and fast way to describe if you're living the American dream or not. The question is, are you following Jesus on the narrow way? Laying aside whatever hinders and all the things that encumber and any sin that entangles as you follow him. The question isn't A, B, C, D, this is right, this is wrong, you're not obeying. The question is, are you following on the narrow way? Are you letting those things, those obstacles on the narrow way skin your knuckles a bit and press you into Jesus, yes sir, with great joy and delight? Are you willingly giving up your possessions knowing you have a better one? One that abides and doesn't perish. Are your affections being set on his return? Or are you following a list of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Religion. He's coming. And he's going to make his bride like him. When we see him, we'll be like him. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What kind of love has he put upon us to call us the children of God? Such we are and the world doesn't understand because they didn't know him. The narrow way is loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Love is costly. It's a constant mirror, full length of self-righteousness, litmus test. Another person, every person, every relationship you have can be a full-length mirror for you and God to embrace his mercy, his kindness, and to get over our desire to reprop up our self-righteousness. Marriage is the best factor in that, obviously. You live with them every day, and you're both a full-length mirror to the other. It's a good thing. Jesus is so good. He wants to remove the leaven in our midst. He's coming for a, a pure bride. And he'll purify us through trials, overcoming temptation, even persecution that's coming. It's exciting. It was for the disciples. They were always full of joy. Why? Because they were found worthy to be flogged and have such an inexpressible joy glorified that it didn't deter them from the narrow way. It actually pressed them in. The narrow way is the same broad place that David found in the Psalms. But it's narrow. David sung of his commands. Because he learned to let them crush him. How he hadn't kept the law. If your affliction hadn't come, I wouldn't have known the joy of your law. I delight in your way. You, O God, are my rock. David praised 
God's nature revealed through his law. David knew that there's only one kind of person that was near to God, the one that was broken and crushed over his own sin. So Jesus calls us to have poverty of spirit, that we find ourselves in the kingdom in the end, to mourn over our sin, that we find comfort ultimately when he comes, but now by the spirit, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He called us to be persecuted, to be salt and light, to follow in the steps of he himself who was reviled for obeying. Piggybacking on last week's message from Ken, what does suffering lead to? Joy. It's not about suffering. It's about fellowship with God. Peter says, he who suffered in the flesh is done with sin, no longer living for the pleasures of man, but the will of God. The pleasure of God is another interpretation of the will of God. But we have a long ways to go in our faith to believe for righteousness from Jesus only. And God knows that. And that's why suffering is the chisel over time that conforms us to the image of Jesus. Paul said, I want to be conformed to his death that I might attain to the resurrection. So we're given the Spirit as a pledge to strengthen us to embrace obedience in the narrow way and find ourselves able to stand before him on that day. Look at the narrow way. One verse in Luke, the way Luke describes the narrow way, it's instead of Jesus teaching this time, someone along the road asked Jesus a, provocative question and he gives the same follow-up of a provocative answer Luke 13 verse 22 he's passing through one city to the next teaching on his way to Jerusalem Luke 13 23 somebody asked him a question Lord are there just a few being saved he said to him strive to enter the narrow word strive is agonizomai. Agonize. It's this idea of the Colosseum or the, the Olympic kind of games where you had to be in shape. And even if you were in shape, you had to have some grit and be ready in that Colosseum, in that whatever that game was, to use every nerve, every part of your body to wrestle for a victory. That's the fight of faith. But he says strive to enter the narrow gate. For many will try to enter and won't be able. You know who is able to enter? The sinners, prostitutes, and Pharisees are coming in by the droves, but the sons of the kingdom themselves are being shut out. The sons of Israel, the Pharisees, Sadducee, the unbelieving Jews, you're being shut out. The Pharisees and Sadducees, or the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, they had nothing to hold on to. They gave it all and they were able to come in. They knew they were sinners. They didn't have this question of religion looming and adding up and 
causing them to add something to the righteousness of God by faith. So, one last exhortation in Galatians 5, in closing. Ask uh, the worship team, whoever's going to come up to lead us to come up now. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4 through 9. Paul's warning these Gentiles not to be circumcised and observe the law and add to believing by faith. Some misinformed Jewish people were thinking they needed to have the Gentiles do that. He warns them. And now when you think of circumcision, just think of any kind of self-righteousness adding to your faith. The big piece is the failure piece. Like, consider this. I want, in closing, I want you to consider this. Are you a good failure? Jesus, make me a good failure. A successful failure. I want to succeed your way. And it's narrow, Jesus. I sign up again. Whatever it may be, whatever it may take. I'm in this race. The joy is set before me. The prize, my eye is on it. There's an upward call for a prize. There's a crown. There's a God who's going to share a throne with you. Yeah, that that word, God, throne, you. One day they're going to fit together. Me, God, a throne. One day they'll be perfectly reconcilable. Until that day I embrace the narrow way. And I call all of us to consider how to be a successful failure along the way. To proceed in the narrow way and not have a righteousness of our own. So Paul says, you've been severed from Christ. You were seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. We through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith, working through love. Love, our very life laid down for the cause of Jesus, payable upon our own death, will be faithful to Jesus. That's love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This person did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. The idea of who hindered you is who cut in on your race? Who cut you off in your morning run? (laughs) Who stopped your run and pulled you aside to an issue that's going to disqualify you from the race? In his goodness, in his mercy, he's calling us to a thorough heart-rending repentance along the narrow way that he would conform us to his son. Church, we need each other for this. We need each other for this. We need help. We need help to be real about our, our battle that we're going through, the fight of faith, to strengthen, to edify, exhort, to comfort, to see each other built up in this race. So that if any unbeliever comes in the midst, they see the sharing of psalms, the sharing of revelation, 
and they fall down and see God in our midst, just like Jesus promised that they'll know you're my disciples. You follow this narrow way? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes will follow you. How else will the world know if we're not walking in this narrow way? We should test our hearts and see, do we have friends that some people in church would turn their nose away from? Do we turn our nose away from them? Embrace the narrow way. I I, I welcome you to come forward. The storm is coming. It's all for testing. It's all from the hand of a good God works everything together for good to those who love him. So welcome to come forward for prayer. Leadership team, whoever uh, wants to come up and pray for people who love to prophesy over you, encourage you, um, build you up, pray for you. So come forward and uh, it's an urgent time. It really is. Time's drawing near to an end. So come prompted by Jesus. We'll pray for you. Let's just stand together. Those of you that uh, need to go, you can feel free to do that. Lord bless you as you go this morning. Just stay as long as you'd like to this morning.